GoneMobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to another episode of Gone Mobile. Yeah, you may notice that something sounds a little bit different this week. Uh, and, well, that's because, you know, I am actually not Greg Shackles. Uh, but no fear, Greg is actually with us on the podcast today. Um, Greg, I don't think you've missed a single episode yet, have you? No, not yet. I mean, it's bound to happen someday, but uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to to not have to miss one so far. Yeah, you've you've got the record for sure. So, but, uh, uh, you know, long-time host, first-time guest, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So if you haven't guessed today, um, you know, well, Greg just threw the cat out of the bag, but it, he is the guest today. And today we're talking about, you know, every once in a while, we actually do, I think, something that's somewhat interesting ourselves. We always have guests on because usually they're way more fun to talk to and have way more interesting things to say than we do. But, you know, one of the things that Greg's been working on is um, something that's near and dear to my heart. I love the this whole idea of home automation and Internet of Things and doing all these crazy things with stuff in my house. And so Greg's been working on, you might have cut his blog post, a bunch of uh, Alexa integrations or a bunch of Echo integrations. And um, before we, you know, let's get this out of the way right now. We're going to try and minimize the use of that word. So if anyone's listening, you know, their stuff doesn't all light up and, and we start talking to their, their devices. So, uh, you know, first of all, when did you get your, your Echo and, and how's that been for you? Uh, overall, it's been pretty good. And that was that was one of the drivers for this originally, too. Like, and I guess I started this project about a little over a year ago or so, um, just because I just saw one of the one year renewals from something I'll talk about later come in. So that's that's the easiest way that I could pinpoint the start of this. Um, but I'd gotten one probably a few months before that. And 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 it sat in my living room. It didn't really do a whole lot. I occasionally used it to set like timers uh, when I was cooking or use it to like you know, ask it what the weather is or check a sports score or something. But I wasn't really like I kind of just wanted one. And I was like sitting in bed one Sunday morning and Amazon was like, hey, we can deliver one to you in the next three hours. I was like, all right, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> purchase done. <laughs> that was all I needed to see. Uh, but and that was one of the drivers for for this where I was like, you know, I should I should really try and see what it's like to build something with this or try to just do more with this in general. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know I got mine early on too, and they didn't really do a whole lot in the beginning. Um, and, and, and so I've had mine for a while and, and Alexa was kind of weird. Oh, I said it, I said the word, uh, the echo was kind of weird in Canada because it, you weren't really supposed to have them in Canada. So they didn't really work quite properly. I mean, most stuff worked, but not everything. Uh, and then, you know, that up until recently, they, they weren't just weren't available officially in Canada. And then the Google assistant came out the google home came out in canada so i jumped onto that now have you played with the google assistant at all that i haven't really had much of an opportunity to do that um you know it, it's one of those things where there's like as much as i wanted to to pick up one of those and play with it and then do you know microsoft's cortana stuff um, there's a limit to like how many different like classes of dev like devices like this i should probably have in the house and you know eventually you know apple with apple tv is probably going to like have better siri integration or a similar like the home kit type stuff so I don't know. It's it's more like I've wanted to play with the Google stuff just for the sake of playing with it. But at a certain point, I feel like I have to have pick some affinity towards something to have a house that remotely works together. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they both kind of have their strengths and weaknesses. And I, I know there's some hardware coming out now that has like both integrated. So maybe that's one way to go in the future. I always think it's kind of funny. Like I've thought about putting the Alexa up now be beside my uh, Google Home. I keep saying the word. And um, uh, <laughs> You know, just to have them both sitting beside each other and knowing to say the right keyword to do the right thing. Like if I want to order something from Amazon, you know, I have to ask that one. And and if I want to play my music, I'll ask the other one. But it's yeah, it's certainly we're, we're hitting a weird spot in terms of, you know, what div different devices are out there and having to pledge allegiance to them to somewhat. Um, do, do you have anything else in your house that you kind of do home automation -y stuff with? 
Not not as much as I'd like. I'm one of the sort of symptoms of of being a, a renter of an apartment is that I don't just sort of have carte blanche to do everything that I want. Um, and that, that being said, I mean, there's a lot that you could do, even just getting like smart switches or, um, you know, I guess if I was really brave, I could put it in a nest or something. But, um, yeah. you know, or, you know, just smart plugs and things that you can remotely control that way. Uh, I haven't totally taken the plunge on that stuff yet. It's it's been in the back of my mind ever since I sort of got through this project of like, oh, well, now what should I do next? Um, but I haven't I haven't done too much yet. I I have to like ease ease into it for the sake of getting uh, the wife approval too. <laughs> yes, key key factor. I know that that was a big thing for me putting in equipment. Is it had to you know it had to be easy and it had to work. Um, one of the things that that I know I found really useful, and I, I know we're going to talk about it today, um, is the Harmony uh, the Harmony Hub, the Harmony Remote. Um, so you've got one of those, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been a big Harmony remote fan for years. Like, uh, you know, going back many, many years, like I for a while, I was on a a search um, for for just like a good universal remote to control, you know, having being someone that has a living room with, you know, a TV, I have a separate like AV system with speakers, and then you have a Blu-ray player, and uh, you might have other media systems, like all these things, you know, having to juggle a 1000 remotes sucks. Um, And honestly, most remote or universal remotes are terrible. Like they're terrible. They were terrible user experiences. Um, and then finally, after trying like five of them, I got to the the old Harmony. Uh, I think it was the Harmony One um, that I still technically have, and and it's still a, a better remote than most companies are putting out. And it lasted. It still works, and it, I bought it eight or nine years ago or so. Um, but then, as part of this, I, I saw that they have. Well, obviously, they've come out with some new products in the last almost decade. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they have uh, the new Harmony. I don't know why I'm blanking on the. Uh, it's just the Harmony Elite is the the one that I have now. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Which isn't honestly wildly different from the other one. It's just a little bit nicer, a little more ergonomic. But um, it was an upgrade. But the big thing was that it also you could get the Harmony Hub, which is it's nice because it gives you sort of your. Your remote talks to the system over Wi-Fi now, so you don't have to be like pointed in exactly the right direction to hit IR signals and all that sort of thing. Um, but it also allowed for it. It had a, an, an echo skill, um, and yeah, you know, I'll also try and not say it too much. I, I mean, I have two in the <laughs> house, and one triggers on one word, one triggers on the other word. So I had to shut it all down before doing this recording. Um, but I saw that it had a skill, and I was like, oh well, that seems like a really useful thing to be like, turn on the TV, turn on this channel, so on and so forth. Like if I'm just walking around the house, that seems pretty awesome. So that's what sort of, at least in my head, that's how I justified the the purchase of of making this upgrade. Um, while still being able to take my old remote and just move it to the the bedroom and use it to control the stuff in there because it's still a really really nice remote. So what what does that skill get you out of the box? Like what what are the types of things that you can tell the Echo to do? Yeah, and it, and it gives you the basics. I mean, um, and truth be told, I, I was more impressed by how useful I found the basics than than I expected to be. Like just being able to. So when you set up these sorts of remotes, you set them up as you set up your devices and then you set up activities within those. So one activity might be watch TV or watch the Blu-ray player or watch Apple TV or watch the Fire Stick. And then, you know, you set it up to know what inputs and what devices should be on. And it kind of, you know, wrangles all that stuff for you. Um, so one of the things you get out of the box is the ability to say, like, hey, dingus, um, <laughs> turn on turn on the TV or turn on Apple TV or watch Apple TV or, or so on and so forth. Um, and it'll it'll switch to that and turn it on. Um, honestly, the one that I use probably the most in general is turn off the TV. So if I'm putting on my shoes, walking out the house, grabbing my keys, I could just say turn off the TV. It shuts everything down and I don't have to go 
find the remote. I don't have to do any of that. And it, it sounds like a little thing, but that was actually the biggest uh, the biggest selling point in the end to to my wife because um, it is just so inherently useful to not have to to think about it. Just say it and walk out the door. Um, and you could set up some channels so you can explicitly go in and favorite certain channels. So I can favorite ESPN and say, you know, turn on ESPN, um, which is okay. It's a little bit more than I really wanted to manage, but but it works. So do you like do you find yourself using um, sort of those channel commands mostly, or like you know what what are you trying to get Alexa to actually do ideally for you with your TV setup? Yeah, and 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 it's a mix. Um, I for the for the. For the core channels that I that I watch, when I know exactly what channel I want to go to, whether it's like a news thing or a sports thing or whatever, it's it's easy to just say you know turn on ESPN or turn on Yes or something like that. Um, you know w- what I what I sort of started envisioning after I put this stuff in place, I was like, well, that that's great, but um, I also like I watch a lot of sports um, and there's sports on year round, and all of them sort of rotate between like three or four different channels. Um, and this is admittedly very much getting into the the class of very first world problems. But sometimes I don't know what channel the game's on, and I feel like the the system should be able to just figure that out for me. So like the the initial sort of impetus for this whole project was me wanting to be able to say, hey turn on the Yankees game or turn on the Rangers game. And it could just figure out what to do based on knowing what's on right now and just go to that sort of channel. Um, so that that was the the inspiration for, for doing this. Um, and you could also imagine uh, a lot of other things just being like, hey, when is something on? If you know, if you want to check future listings or, you know, what's on this channel right now or anything like once you have that sort of data, there's a lot of cool stuff you could do with it. So, like, what service are you using uh, then to watch sports, or what service are you primarily integrating this this idea with? In terms of, I so like really, who actually provides you with the vi- the video content? Like, can you do this with all sorts of services, or is this ta- you know what we're going to talk about the solution you made? Is it tailored to one uh, specific provider or? Mine is actually just totally because I because of the fact that I watch sports, I've never been able to be one of those cable cutters that can get rid of cable because there are just way too many laws preventing them. Like. The, the way the laws work, at least here in the, in the U.S. with, with most uh, sports companies, is that like if you're in a local market, you can't watch the games online. So you could subscribe to all the online MLB packages and whatnot. But if I'm in New York and I want to watch a New York Yankees game, it's blacked out from online subscribers. So I still have to pay my monthly cable fees. So, so I ended up implementing this just as something that controls the channel, like basically changes the channels on my cable box. Okay, so you know you're using a, a cable provider, and it's just kind of sending the hub the codes to pass on to the, or telling the hub to to pass on the IR codes to the hub that or the box that you're using. Is that correct? Yeah, like basically the the stuff that we'll get into that I built, it, it's really just like a remote remote control. Like it's okay. just it's passing, it's figuring out what channel something's on, and then sending down the commands or saying change the channel to this, and then it kind of switches things around. So do you want to give a sort of a high level overview then of like what you actually built and, and what are the different moving pieces in it? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a lot more than, than there probably should be. Um, it was, it, it was an interesting project. It's kind of like if, if you think of that, there's that XKCD cartoon from a few years ago where I think like the tagline is like, can you pass the salt? And then there's like a frame in the middle where nothing happens. And then the, the person out of frame is getting really mad that this, the salt isn't getting passed. And he's like, well, I know I'm, I'm building a system to, to pass ar- arbitrary <laughs> condiments over to you. And it'll save time in the long run, I swear. And I, and I felt like that was sort of the conversation I kept having in my house <laughs> um, while, while this, this thing was happening. But uh, like I said, when I, when I was designing this project, uh, you know, I, I started with a few goals, you know, 
just to to see what I could do uh, with this sort of side fund project. Um, for one, you know, like I said, I wanted to change channels just by searching listings. I didn't want to have to manage that myself. Um, I also had a side goal of if I did have to run anything in my house, I wanted to finally use this Raspberry Pi that I bought <laughs> yeah. literally half a decade ago. Like I found the receipt, and it was like five years that it, I don't know. I remember like playing with mono on it like back at five years ago, and then I never. Actually, yeah, then did it just looks nice it. sitting on the shelf, right? Yeah. So, uh, and <laughs> this ended up being like a fun constraint because, you know, there's, you know, for 20 bucks, I could pick up a newer Raspberry Pi that is much nicer than the one I got half a decade ago. But I kind of put my foot down and said, no, I have to use the old kind of, you know, it's not bad, but it doesn't have the, you know, nicer processor and some other stuff that the newer ones had. But I'm just going to finally use that thing and justify the $30 I spent, you know, five years <laughs> ago. Um, but I wanted that to be the only infrastructure that I had to actually manage myself. Um, and and it, I wanted to use it as an opportunity to to leverage some more of Azure that I hadn't necessarily had a chance to play with. Like, you know, I, I play with that. Like I, my personal site runs in Azure. My, uh, some of my other side projects I run in Azure. Um, but but my day job is in AWS. So it was a good good chance to, you know, if I needed to run some new type of service, well, I could see what that looks like in, in Azure. Um, and as we'll talk about, I ended up getting to use more services than I even expected going going in, um, and I and I wanted to use F Sharp for all these things as much as possible. Like I'm I'm a big fan of the language, um, and I wanted to see how well uh, that language might work in in this sort of scenario. Um, and then the final constraint that that I put on it is I wanted this to be as cheap as possible, um, and that constraint ends up playing into some of the other other decisions that I made. Um, but regardless of what sort of like credits I have through a, um, MSDN or anything like that, I was like, well. Let's use that. Let's treat that like a constraint and see what I could sort of build for, you know, dollars. You yeah, know, a few well, dollars you, you also want to like leave some credits open for future projects too, right? Even if you have them. Exactly. Plus, honestly, it's just a lot of fun when building these apps to to sort of play like cloud pricing golf and like yeah. see how see what decisions you can make that'll like pull your pricing down and see what actually costs money. Um, so the that that was the the sort of overall goal. Um, so I guess. Instead of talking about the end solution, it might actually just be worth starting to talk through some of the the pieces and how how it got put together because it, it did sort of evolve um, a little bit over time. So let let's say then let's let's start with this. Let's say I you know I say hey Dingus um, you know turn on the Leafs game because I mean what are you doing watching the Rangers anyway? But you know <laughs> I say that and, and you know let's start walking through once that command is given what actually happens. Yeah, so any of the code that's executing in Azure, um, I'm leveraging Azure Functions for, which uh, is great because it's as close to free as you can really get. Like you get a million executions a month, and I think a hundred thousand gigabyte seconds a month, depending on how much um, uh, how much execution time you need to use um, and and bandwidth and all that stuff. But it's it's crazy crazy cheap, um, and it has pretty good F Sharp support. And as as part of this, I I hit upon some limits of their F Sharp support, and the team would patch them really quickly. So if you kind of go through my blog post series, you'll see some concessions I made in like earlier ones where I had to use uh, Newtonsoft JSON for JSON things, and then by the time I got to like two posts later, I was able to use the nice sort of type provider ways and things like that. Um, but that stuff's all written in, in F sharp. Um, so if we start from, from that side of things, um, it's, it's worth, actually, I think before we do that, it's worth talking about how the data gets in there. Just Yeah. Um, let's back up to even like the, the Amazon side of things. Like when that command gets through the echo, you know, they send it to Amazon servers and then like, where does it go from there? Yeah. So from that side of things, there's, um, in the, the the Amazon developer portal, you define a skill. Um, 
and and you could tell if you're if you're using Amazon for your hosting and stuff too, you can tie that skill directly via an ARN to uh, an AWS Lambda function, which is really nice. Then you don't have to worry about security. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, but if you uh, otherwise, you could just have it hit uh, an HTTPS endpoint. So that's what I was doing, and I just from an Azure function uh, in my account, I expose an HTTPS endpoint. Um, and there was a nice library I was able to pull in uh, that someone else wrote that knows how to to verify the signature of that request coming in, make sure it, it came from Amazon. You definitely want to do that instead of just leaving a <laughs> wide open uh, API to, to your living room. Um, and I'll have a, a funny aside about that later, too. Um, uh, but, you know, so so that part was fairly simple. And then it really just had to tap into to some of the, the things. So what happens on those requests? We could start from from that side of things. Um, it'll go in, it'll, um, I have Azure search service running, uh, that every day there's a, in, it gets the, the next day or two days worth of listings, um, and, and puts those into the Azure search service, which is basically just like a Lucene service there, full text search engine. Um, so it goes, it looks up, it finds the, it says, um, it limits the, the time span of shows to what's on right now does mm -hmm. a text search for whatever it is that you said to turn on and picks the best match and uh then looks up the channel for that and then sends down a command into the house to say change the channel to uh to whatever channel it found um so there's a whole lot of moving parts in that uh that, that we could dig into but yeah um, and a lot of things that had to go into to putting all of that in place but that at a high level that's really what it's doing it's just an eight it's uh, an HTTP endpoint that takes in a request in the format that, that Amazon skills give you um, and then just looks it up in, in my databases and sends down into another API that we'll get into the, the command to change the channel. Telerik UI for Xamarin is a collection of more than 70 Xamarin forms and Xamarin wrappers, a theming mechanism with a built-in predefined theme, predefined Visual Studio item templates, MVVM support, and more. The toolset offers fast loading, excellent drawing capabilities, pixel perfection, and stunning UI, all while providing flexible customization. One C-sharp project, three native mobile apps. Release your inner .NET Ninja and create awesome cross-platform mobile apps with Telerik UI for Xamarin. For more information or to download a trial, visit telerik.com slash Xamarin dash gone mobile. So can you dig into what it actually looks like when to create a, a skill for the, the Echo? Like on the Amazon side of things, like what, you know, what does that what do you actually do to make it convert something into a web request or, or how does it know what data to send you and what does that data look like? Yeah. So, so it's pretty simple and you know, you, you can get really complicated with types of skills, but at a, at a very basic level, if, especially if you don't want to do sessions and um, you know, conversate like full conversations, if it's sort of a one and done command line sort of thing, like I ended up doing for this uh, you, what you do is you define intents and intents are, uh, I mean, similar to what you'd have on like Android intent, something like that, where it's just, it's, it's a type of command that you want to enable. So I have a couple commands, like one is a direct command if, you know, for something like tell the TV to mute, tell the TV to pause. Um, so it knows how to tr translate that. It'll send that down and find a matching command, uh, in the list of available commands for the remote, for the current activity that you're in. Um, and then it'll do that. So that's also a really useful thing. Like, hey, the doorbell goes off. Hey, tell the TV to, to pause or tell the TV to mute if the phone rings or something like that. Um, and you give it, so you give it the intent, you give it the, um, the, the pieces of the command that you want to parse out and those will be sent down into the, you know, the, the pieces of the, the, the intent that you can parse in your app. 
Um, and then you also give it a few uh, sample utterances. So, so with with the placeholders that you expect it to parse out. So you can, in my case, you could say like, ask the TV to tell the TV to such and such. Like, give it a few variants to help it sort of figure out a speech model around ways that you might say it, and it's ways to to form a little more natural uh, speech patterns around these types of things. Um, the the one the one sort of downside that I found in this, and it, it was disappointing coming from this uh, this high level goal of being better than the Logitech skill is it turns out that uh, the way it's implemented in in these skills and the way you interact with them it's very much like a spoken command line almost which is uh, which is okay for some things but it's not like perfect for natural speech mm -hmm. so whereas I can um, I guess if I'm someone like Logitech I can pay a bunch of money to Amazon and get first class uh, first class rights to just be able to say, turn on the TV without any sort of uh, qualifier there. If for, for me, I was developing a skill where I had to, I gave my skill uh, an alias of TV. And then for me to interact with it, I have to say, hey, tell the TV to blank or ask the TV to blank. So I have to say, tell the TV to turn on the Yankees game or tell the TV to mute. Um, it's not that bad. It's just a thing to, to kind of remember, but it, it does make it a little less natural and conversational, like by having this, this mental, this mental thing of having to remember to say, you know, this prefix before the thing that you naturally want to say. Yeah. I, w um, I wonder if they'll open that up a little bit. I know <clears throat> something, I, I think what Google is starting to do, or I don't know if they've done it yet, is they, they were talking about, um, you know, being a little bit smarter on their end to know, uh, you know, phrase, which phrase should go to which app based on what the actual possible utterances and everything are for the actual skill itself, right? So, um, I, I know I found that kind of uh, as a user of these devices, it's kind of yeah, it's not the most fun to have to say, um, you know, hey, thing, tell uh, Harmony to press pause or something. It's like it's it's all you know, like you said, first of all, problems, but like it's kind of a mouthful to just pause the TV. But, um, it is. And, and it's a step on the way to where we go. And I, and I can understand from their side wanting to keep it sort of sandboxed while yeah. they figure out what they want to do. Because, it, you know, I guess if they open it all up uh, from the start, then it probably limits how much they can evolve things afterwards. So so as a programmer, I get it. But as, as a, a user just interacting by voice, it, it, it makes you realize that this is very early stages for this sort of thing in the house where it's really cool that it works, but it's not you know, the, this isn't like Hal or something like that yet. Like it's not, it's not a perfect model. And, and can anyone go and, and use your skill? Like when you publish it, is it just for yourself or does anyone get access to it? So I could, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the fun thing. Um, I, it is a private skill right now. So you do have the ability to, to have private skills um, and then you set up your device as a test device. And that's how you get access to that in within your app on your phone or whatever. Um, if I did publish it, it, at least as written, it would mean that anyone in the world could add that skill and then control my living room. So uh, because I didn't build this up to be like a, a true service where you have your own accounts and devices and all that sort of stuff, um, uh, I didn't really want to do that. But but I could, in theory, if it was a generic service that had some sort of authentication scheme and things like that, then I'd be able to publish it and, and treat it like a public uh, public skill there. Right. I, I suppose that'd be quite a bit more work to, to, you know, add support for that kind of configuration of the endpoints and everything like that based on a per account or whatever, however you would do it. Yeah. And, and it's a cute idea and something that crossed my mind, but given, um, and I could talk to like the stuff that I'm running in the house to enable this, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's also kind of a non-starter because it's not purely a, a cloud thing. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've got you know you've got your skill set up. Um, it's posting back to your your callback URL, and it's giving you like a, a bunch of different variables, I guess that you know it kind of parsed out, or it was smart enough to to use natural language parsing to say, hey, here's what the intent was. Here are the the different placeholders that you know I, I populated it with. Um, what do you do next on on your side of things once you get that data? Yeah, and it's it it gives you I mean in your in your skill definition um, in the intents and stuff like you you define what those sort of placeholders are called too. So when it shows up in your app and it passes the signature tests and all that, you basically there's just a little block of code that says, okay, which type of intent is this? Is it a direct command? Is it a you know a watch show? And then I just go into some different handlers there that say, okay, well if it's a watch show, then it needs to go look up the show and yada yada yada. And if it doesn't find it, it can respond with, I couldn't find that show. And so there's a format that you can respond in as well that it'll know how to translate that into a, a spoken response. As, okay, so, so does that, your do your does your script actually like send a response back or? It does. You you at least need to send something back because uh, otherwise it's going to sit there spinning and then. Um, eventually it's going to say this skill timed out, um, and mine did that for a while and I'll explain why, <laughs> but, um, but, but, or so, and you can respond with, uh, just an empty kind of response in which case it'll just stop the skill. It won't say anything, or you can respond with like, okay, or, um, you know, it can respond with, I couldn't find that show. Um, originally I had everything responding with, okay. And that got really, really annoying. So I just switched it to, if it all worked, it doesn't need to say anything. So I just have those responding with, uh, just an empty string. So it just shuts it down. You didn't want to like randomize it in a bunch of different phrases, like maybe some like bugger offs and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it just turned out to be more annoying to be like, tell the TV to mute. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then, but meanwhile, you also see the TV muting and yeah. things like that. Like, you know, the the effect of whatever you're trying to do should be obvious enough without having to to, to hear from the other side of the room that that echoing it as well. So you have your, you have that response. Now you've got the placeholders that you want. Let's say it's a command where, you know, I'm telling you to turn on the Leafs game, like we said before. So, you know, how do you, you said you're using the Azure um, search service for that. Uh, how do you actually, you know, connect to that? How do you query it? And what kind of response do you get back? Like, how does that next piece fit together? Yeah, so the search services, I mean, you just, I'm communicating it with entirely over just a REST API that it exposes. Um, and we could talk, I could talk real quick about how I get the data in there, because that's most of the, a lot of the work was just in getting the the data in there in the first place. So uh, I mean, I looked through a few different data sources for this sort of thing. Um, some of them were crazy expensive. Some of them were were really cheap and really unreliable. I found one called XML TV listings that was like 20 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. uh, that seemed to be good enough. Um, so I just kind of went with that. It was it was a price that was low enough and seemed reliable enough that it was worth just taking a $20 plunge and seeing what's up. Um, I set up uh, a SQL database. So I needed some sort of uh, store besides the search service for some things. Um, I really wanted to, you know, in theory, I want to play with like Redis or, you know, put in something cool like Cosmos and this and that. Um, and and this is where that constraint that we talked about came in, where I was like, well, this has to be as cheap as possible. Yeah. And literally the, the cheapest data store you can get is a $5 a month SQL Server database. <laughs> yeah. there. So Good I was like, okay, SQL. SQL Server. I mean, it works great. It's yeah. the smallest instance they have. It's five bucks a month. Um, so that's, that's my primary data store. So, uh, and you know, as the, the name XML TV listings implies, you just get an XML file that I can download every day, parse that out. Uh, so I loaded like the channels into the database, loaded those into, um, into the search service. And then 
every day uh, runs every morning. There's a Azure function that I wrote called download lineup runs every morning, I think at like three or 4 a.m., something like that, something at a time where I'm not really worrying about it. Yeah. And literally, all, literally all it does is it downloads today's um, today and tomorrow's listings from XML TV listings and dumps those into Azure blob storage. Uh, so that's all it does. It just drops it in there. Um, and this is one one, so I just have like a, you know, the XML that I can refer to, but they also sort of uh, limit how many times you can download a day. So it made sense to just pull that down once. Um, and that's sort of the, the beauty of Azure Functions and this whole serverless thing is you, it all becomes very event driven. So you just tie together little pieces. And this function is literally four lines of F sharp, I think. Um, and one or two of those is logging code. So this um, is just like doing a, you know, a timer trigger or something like that, right? Time, this time space trigger. Exactly. So it just it does the trigger. It downloads the file. It drops it into uh, drops it into Blob Storage, and then Blob Storage is a trigger for my import lineup function. That's another few lines of code that it parses through. That it does a little bit of data manipulation to to clean up some things like movie titles to make them mm -hmm. more searchable and some stuff based on some patterns I saw, but not a whole lot. Um, and then dumps those into uh, the SQL database. So it'll it'll get rid of everything that's in there now, and it goes in and adds the, the new set of shows. Um, and then what happens is it'll drop it drops a message into into a queue, basically just saying, "Hey, I'm done downloading today's messages," which triggers one more uh, one more function called rebuild search index. So that's going to go in. Um, and just rebuild the that um, Azure Search Service search index so that it has all the the latest stuff in it from that day. Um, so now you know with it, it's like I said, it sounds a little bit like a Rube Goldberg machine, but it's yeah. it's also it also makes it crazy testable too because you could just test each of these little steps. You can you can simulate it just by dropping a message in a queue or something like that. And now I've got this flow every morning that just takes a couple of minutes uh, at like four a.m. that downloads the XML, stores that forever imports that into the database and then pushes that all into the the search service and um, honestly once it was written um, and some of this is is just a testament to the way you know how stable and easy f sharp makes some of these things too uh, but I just haven't thought about any of those steps since they've been running like every so often I go in and look at the stats to see if they were failing and it, those never do it's just it's rock solid just works, pipeline, yeah. which is fun yeah so I, um, I like the idea of using the like the Azure Azure Search, which, like you said earlier, is, is sort of like uh, Lucene or some kind of you know um, I can't think of the the term for it, but the the fuzzy text search, I guess. Um, yeah. How, like, has that worked pretty well in terms of matching what you're actually trying to put on the TV? Yeah, it has, and um, you know, there's some stuff that that there's a lot you could do depending on how kind of crazy you want to get with tuning things. Like, you could have it uh, prefer. You know, you can sort of tune how it does its ranking. So you can have it favor certain matching in, like, say, a title field more than the description field and things like that. So you can get kind of clever. Um, you know, there, there's probably a lot of room for for doing synonyms if I want to say, like, hey, turn on turn on the game, um, have yeah. it sort of replace replace that with something that makes sense, or like, there's a lot you could do. Um, but its default sort of rankings and and search it it does what it's supposed to and it's it's really really quick so it's it's been a, a really good fit for this sort of thing and something that just SQL Server is not built for yeah yeah and, and I'm curious too like you know do do any of the like say for uh, Leafs games like do do those records from the XML TV listings do they have any sort of like common identifier that you could maybe track over time like hey um, usually when I I turn something on that's the Leafs game. It's this type of, of, uh, 
show or this type of production that turns on. And maybe you could like even think about something crazy like storing weighted averages of, you know, stuff that you actually tune into and, and guessing better based on that. Or, you know, have you thought yeah. down that path? I, I've thought about it. Um, honestly, the so the, the the stuff that I get from the the channel formats and stuff there, there might be some extra info there. The, the most common problem that I've run into and that I've thought about adding like the ability to have search synonyms or something is that if I say search for the Yankees, um, sometimes that can match like a movie somewhere. Sometimes that can match like some other show like about, you know, historic Yankee stuff or something um, where if I say search for the New York Yankees, that almost always matches. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like if I, that would probably be one of the next things I do with this. It, um, once Yankee season starts up again is uh, add some sort of like synonyms there of just say, well, if I say Yankees just in the search secretly replace that with the fully qualified one. And now that's probably going to match the thing that I'm looking for. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's probably a lot easier to develop too. <laughs> so uh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we've got, I think we've, we've got the first few steps um, we've talked about in pretty good depth. So now that you've got your know, search result back, presumably then you know what, you know, channel number and everything you want to tune into. Um, what's the next piece of the puzzle? Like how do you actually get that information back to the harmony at this point? Yeah. And that was, that's, that's the, one of the more interesting parts of this project too. And that's where that raspberry Pi comes in. So, um, there is a little API on that you can hook into on the harmony hub. Um, I mean, Logitech has some private developer thing for it, but then I was able to find, there's a nice little node app that you can run that I'm just running. Uh, it's called harmony API. Uh, I'm just running that on this raspberry Pi. That's just running. I think I'm just running the Ubuntu install or, or it's probably just the Raspbian install or something. Cause this thing's so old. Um, I, I tried doing all this. I tried doing a bunch of clever stuff with Docker on this earlier and I, I almost had it working, but this, this raspberry Pi was a little too old to make <laughs> yeah. things like Docker work reliably. So I just gave up. Um, but, uh, so I'm running the, the, this little node server and it has the ability to, to query and control your harmony hubs. It can discover them on the network. Um, and, and it had, it's like a, a little rest API and it also has a an MQTT API that I'll, I'll get into in a bit, but I had never worked with that before, so I ignored that. And I said, well, I know how to get an HTTP and, um, you know, endpoints and, and REST calls and all that stuff up, up and working, so I'll just go with those. Um, and, and it was really easy. Like, I, in my house, just to test it out, I pulled up Postman. You start making REST calls to this, and I was able to just, uh, you know, control my living room, you know, from my computer. So it proved that it worked. But the catch then is that for Azure to reach into that, I have to expose that um, that the Harmony API on the public internet, right? Like I yeah. need to expose my living room to the world for the world to be able to call in and make an HTTP call. Um, so I did that and I found, <laughs> I, I waffled a little bit and I was like, and I found, then I found that dot house was a valid TLD. And I was like, oh, well now I have to do this. Yeah. So I bought sh shackles dot house. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, and I had to secure this. So I, it was like a fun little exercise in securing the heck out of this little raspberry Pi too. So, I, I got a certificate through Let's Encrypt mm -hmm. um, and set up the, the you could set up a little background daemon that like every, I think every month it goes through and renews their certificate. Um, I set up Nginx on there. So it's kind of proxied through Nginx, which is just a reverse, easy to, really easy to use reverse proxy software um, that also adds a little bit of uh, like password protection to it. So there's like a secret key that you have to send through and all that's managed with uh, with Nginx so that the Harmony API itself didn't have to change. Like, I didn't have to change the code to that. It was just running on its normal local port. And then through Nginx, I, I just had, say, say port 9,000 forward to 8,000 if 8,000 is Harmony API. 
And then on 9,000, I secured it with all the certificate stuff and the secrets. And uh, it takes like one line of uh, Nginx configuration to add like rate limiting and, and things like that. Um, so that so that that ended up working out pretty well, and then I I set up a service called No IP, where mm-hmm. this was like, it's free if you're you're okay with using their custom dom or their like little domain. So it could have been like you know, shackleshouse dot like No IP dot whatever they use. Right. Um, but because I was stubborn, I really wanted to use this new dot <laughs> house. I I you could pay thirty five a year for custom domain support. So there's just like a little daemon on the the Raspberry Pi that. You know, every you know, it just keeps pulling. It keeps checking its the the local IP for for my internet connection, which isn't a static IP, and then lets them know so that they can update their their DNS records. Right. So your domain always points properly to your house. Yeah. So you know, by the time I was done with this thing, I ran uh, you know an SSL Labs uh, certificate check, and I was able to get to like an A score. Um, you know, by di- doing all like disabling, you know, unsecure, like outdated ciphers. And I, I went a little further with this than I probably really needed to. But it was like, a f- <laughs> I really wanted to get that A rating on my my little Raspberry Pi. Um, and I and I have uh, some of the configuration and stuff on uh, on the blog, if, if that's of interest. Um, but but that was kind of the last piece of the initial puzzle. Right. So now the all I had to do is just take my my Azure function, hook it up to uh, this endpoint that's now exposed from the house, and then just that it could use that to to control everything in the living room. So, I mean, if you think about the whole like progress of progression of like the command issued to the Echo, um, all the way back to your house, like that's a few hops and a few things that's ha- that are happening. Like, what what did the latency uh, seem? You know, how how did that work out for you? Was it kind of slow? It, it was terrible. Yeah, okay. um, and it, this was actually a reason why I ended up. Well, you know, there's always a few reasons to drop side projects for a while. Like, you know, life gets busy, uh, you know, things get in the way. But also, like, it was, I initially stopped using it because it was just so frustrating to use. It would time out all the time. And and it makes a lot of sense. Like you said, if you think about it, it has, if you think about what it takes. Um, so if you go into the, the, the skill or the function handling the, the skill request. Mm-hmm. So once it gets, say it has its, it's like, okay, the Yankees game is on channel 500. So what it has to do is it has to send down commands, and I had it sending separate requests for every every command, um, which I could have certainly optimized. But right. it's it's making a web request for five zero zero enter because I didn't want to wait for the like ten seconds for the thing to auto enter. Yeah. So that's four HTTPS requests. So each of those has to to build up and tear down a, a web request that has to do the SSL handshake. Um, so even in the best scenarios, it was like a yeah, five second lag. And it was usually yeah. more than that. Like it, it was a lot and it would time out all the time. Things would go wrong. Um, so it, it made it, it made it unusable. Like, and I just stopped using it for a while. I ran out of time. I played a little bit with some, the, the MQTT stuff. It didn't really work for me out of the box and I got frustrated and ran out of time. Um, so and in addition to to just having a um, per, to the performance sucking, it you know as as I just talked through, there's there's a lot of moving parts that it, you know there's a lot that can go wrong there, right? There's the no IP stuff, there's the nginx stuff, there's the certificates renewing every month, um, and just the fact that it's a public API into my living room. They, like there was even performance aside, there there were some downsides, and it was amazing that the Rube Goldberg machine kind of yeah. worked. But, well, and it was um, an old Raspberry Pi too, right? So like that's not the fastest thing to begin with either. So. Exactly. Um, but but that's where I was like, okay, if I'm going to actually make this thing usable, I need to I, I need to improve the performance of this. And what and that really just boils down to uh, 
you know, getting off of HTTP. Um, and just as an aside there, one of the other, the ways um, that, that I measured this, like I wanted to have some before and after measurements of real performance too. And uh, it's really easy to hook application insights up in Azure. So that was another Azure service I was able to pull in here. Um, and I just instrumented the heck out of every everything in my my function. So every time it, ser- it did a search into my search index, it was like one line of code that it, that I had to add to every function and it would treat it, you would get like one of those like Gantt charts, like a, a water flow kind of thing of, um, you know, here's, here's how long the whole request took and then here's how long each little piece was. It was like the search service was this, li- uh, the search engine was this little piece and then the, the calls into the house were the entire damn thing. So, um, so it made it really obvious that that was the real bottleneck in what was taking up time here. But I didn't want to make assumptions right from the start either. So that was just the, like with insights, that's what are they doing special there? Is that something, some special tie in with Azure functions that they're able to kind of like look at the IL that's running and just basically evaluate every piece of it? And or how, how are they doing that? So, so for free, you get overall function execution in there. And where I say for free, it's, you know, eventually, there's a free tier of, of app insights. Um, at a certain point, you start paying once you have enough requests. But just by for free in terms of if you check the box of turn on app insights for this function app, uh, you basically just get full execution time. So, you know, you'll get timing that says this function took five seconds to run, but you won't get that breakdown. Um, but one of the things you can do is just pull in their SDK. You get an instrumentation key, you pull in their SDK, um, and you can they, there's a dis, you can call like telemetry dot I think start operation and it gives you this disposable object um, and you give that a name and then it'll measure a segment of time in between creating that and it getting disposed um, and just by nature of the way that disposables work in F sharp it was literally just you just put use use operation equals whatever at the top of a function and then in F sharp it'll automatically dispose that when that function goes out right, of scope so. Right. You know, in C sharp, it would just be a couple extra lines and braces, but so the same sort of idea. Um, but then when you go and look at that request in, in App Insights after that, you would see those operations broken down by time and when they happened in the request. So either in either language, it would just be a couple lines of code and you could break those down, but it does require uh, changing the code a, a little bit there. Oh, cool. So, I, I mean, you've got, you know, you've measured your performance and now what were you actually doing to improve it? Yeah, so that's where I started to learn um, what the heck MQTT was, and it's it's uh, message queue telemetry transport, which sounds really fancy. It's really just this little. It's a lightweight pub sub protocol that's really big in the IoT space. It's good for these little devices that have to send a lot of messaging back and forth. It's built on TCP, but it doesn't have all the weight of uh, HTTP or any of this other stuff. Um, and it's supported by Azure IoT Hub. So I was like, okay, well, now here's another piece of Azure I could pull in and make <laughs> yeah. this thing happen. Um, usually, it, it's kind of a funny thing. And I was talking to someone at Microsoft recently about this too, where he, he was very amused by my use of IoT Hub, where all the Azure IoT demos that you see, it's like this sea of devices, like thousands of devices out there, like big farms around the world and stuff, right? Like sensors reading in from factories and managing that. Like mine is literally one device connected into IoT Hub. But what that allows me to do is it means that my device is reaching out of my network and establishing a persistent connection with Azure instead of Azure having to establish a new connection into my house over the web every time it has a command to send. Um, So for one, I could set up alerts that say, if I wanted an app insights that say, well, if the device goes down, you can let me know. Like I can know if the the thing loses power or something gets wrong with the the Raspberry Pi or something because it'll disconnect from the IoT hub. Right. Uh, but but mostly it means that 
yeah, I have that nice persistent connection. Anything that um, you use the Azure IoT SDK in, in the functions, it's just another .NET library. Anything you send to that, it's going to show up instantly because the connection is already there. Uh, so that that cuts down on all of that latency that that's in there. So does the like the, the Harmony Hub itself isn't listening or isn't connecting to this, right? It's that node instance that you've got set up that connects up to the the Azure Hub. So it's just a, the standard MQTT <laughs> protocol, or what? Yeah, and this is where the Rube Goldberg machine gets a little more Rube Goldbergian, um, or whatever the, the the technical term for that would be, um, convoluted, where. And, and this is the part that tripped me up originally when I just didn't take the time to really understand what was happening with MQTT, uh, because the Harmony API that I'm using supports MQTT out of the box. You just give it, you give it like the address and the port of the broker that it should connect to, and it and it publishes on a known set of, uh, it's just topics. So you you publish it publishes messages messages to topics. That's all MQTT really is. Um, but it, but it wasn't working. I couldn't get it working quite right with Azure IoT hubs. I was like, it didn't seem like the messages were getting there or they weren't being understood. Uh, and the reasoning for that was really just that um, Harmony API was publishing to topics that, like a predictable set of topics that it knew. And then it relied on the other side listening on those exact topics. Whereas on the Azure IoT side, they have a very specific way that you have to publish to Azure IoT for it to make it through to the device and, and vice versa. Um, so in the end, it ended up being like 15 lines of JavaScript, another little node app that I wrote. That's just uh, what I just call the, the IoT hub bridge or something like that, where it just it, when it spins up, it spins up its own little MQTT server. Um, that's what the Harmony hub or the Harmony API connects to. And then this thing just basically just bridges back and forth like it knows on if a message needs to go up, then it, it translates that to, to what Azure is expecting. And if it's coming down from Azure, it just translates that back down to what the hub is expecting. So it's, it's just a really thin proxy layer. But that's all that's what I ended up needing to do just to connect those those two sides. And then are you so you're still doing like individual commands for something like channel 500 or something like that? Yeah, and, and 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 I started there. So I, I started by not really changing the the protocol there, um, and and it worked well enough. I, sometimes it would get a little like tripped up, or sometimes things would arrive a little bit out of order, which ended up being the bigger problem, because <laughs> um, then it's literally a different channel or something that it, that it's switching to. Um, but once I had this this really quick pipeline in place, it was it was just a few lines of code to change to like add the ability to send through like a list of just a bigger message that says, here's four commands in one message, run those in order or something. Right, so you um, could batch them together. Yeah, so now, uh, you know, and the other side of this too is that, the, you know, if you think of of what's happening on the function side, your, your function is still running and the skill, you know, if you look at your device, it still has the little light spinning while for any time it's spent send it, or spending sending things down to the house. So the sooner you could just get out of that loop and send the messages down, the quicker the skill exits and everything becomes responsive again too. Uh, but ultimately it just ended up being a few lines of code to change and the bridge and the skill to say, instead of sending these through as four separate commands, just send them as a list of commands and parse them. Um, which was also when I, when I encountered the fact that my cable box is very much not expecting commands at a rate that only like a computer could give <laughs> like it's clearly expecting commands at a rate that you could hit buttons on a remote yeah. which makes some sense so the first time i tested this literally crashed my cable box um and i was like oh no <laughs> thankfully it came back up and then i just added a little thread sleep into there um 
And originally, I, and at first, again, I had the thread.sleep in the, the Azure function side. And I was like, well, that's stupid. That's just time. Literally wasted money. Um, so I just moved that sleep over to uh, to the bridge side. And, and it works works just as well. And, and my cable box doesn't crash, which is which is really nice. So how quickly, like from, you know, saying the command to uh, the echo to, to actually changing the channel, like what have you shrunk that time down to now? Yeah, and it, it depends if it's like the first time that I run it or if yeah. it's like warmed up. Like there there is cold start penalties and stuff um, uh, to to Azure Functions in general, and sometimes it seems like you know the first search or to to the search service might be a little cold. Um, but if but if you know, assuming it's warm, um, it's within like less than a second until it's done. And again, again, some of that is literally sleep time, like a set time right. out of like. 100 or 200 milliseconds between each command just to not break the thing. Uh, but, but when it's humming along, it's, it feels instant, basically, or as close to instant as I can realistically get. So that's, that's pretty much, you know, as fast or faster, at least, than you would be, even if you knew the channel ahead of time you wanted to tune to, by the time you, you know, found the remote, first of all, which, you know, takes forever at my place, and then enter those numbers and enter the enter button, you're, you're probably still quicker, I would think, yeah? Yeah, like when it's all working, it, it 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 is quicker, and especially for if you have like a command, like you say, tell the TV to mute or something like that. Does, yeah. That has to send now one command. There's no pausing or anything and it's, like there's that. There's no and looking it, up a, a search service for that one either, right? So it's just you know straight down. Yeah, there's a little bit of a database call there where each time uh, this is where it, I had to start making things a little fancier when I got into the MQTT side because it's all it, anytime something changes, it publishes an event to this uh, to this topic. Whereas on the HTTP side, it could just say, hey, what are the list of commands available right now? So there's another little bit of code in that bridge now that says, well, anytime that the activity changes, take the list of new commands and persist those into a database. So, you know, Apple TV has a different set of commands available than TV does. There's usually overlap. So usually it doesn't matter, to be honest. Like everything has a play, a pause, a volume up or whatever. Um, But just for the sake of, you know, flexibility i i'm you know maintaining an, an active list of of available commands but but really i could if it ever became a problem i would just get rid of it because they're usually the same so i mean this is this is neat because you can do it you know just by by knowing what commands the the actual device that you're trying to control uses um like have you tried doing anything beyond the basic set of commands with something like the apple tv or any of the other boxes yeah not too much i mean just because there's not much of an api to to the other things um like out once you get beyond just literally hitting buttons on the remote, like you need, as long as there's an API attached, like the, the big moral of the story is, is if there's an API, you can tie anything to anything. Um, but in this case, I just have an API to the remote. So I'm able to simulate things on a remote. But if I wanted to get, if you say I wanted to control something in Apple TV, like load up, say, watch Netflix, it would need to know once it's in Apple TV, it would need to have some way to figure out how to get, to the Netflix icon and depending yeah. on where you left it last time, yeah. it couldn't, it becomes pretty tough. Um, so I would love to be able to do something like that, but it's just that I'm not quite there yet. But, but in theory, I mean, it, assuming say in that case, um, you know, Apple adds like a Hey Siri sort of thing to it at some point, I could switch voice assistants, I suppose, and, and go into to that one, but maybe someday. Do you have any, you know, more immediate plans of stuff that you know you could do that you're not doing now? Not, not too much. Um, yeah, I mean, if anything, it would be starting to like tune some of the more common search queries because I don't. I also don't find that I use it for that many different things. Like it's usually the same sorts of things each time. 
Um, where if I want to get really quick, I could probably even start like pre-checking when certain things I know are going to watch are going to be on. So it already knows the answer by the time I ask right. or, um, but the first step would probably just be like what we talked about before of, of tuning, you know, replacing Yankees with New York Yankees or, or something that, that knows a little bit more about the context I search in and puts a, puts in a much more, um, uh, a much more predictable search term for it or knows which channels are like to favor over others, which might be something that, that could help that a lot too. Cause if I, if I say watch the Yankees game, I probably don't want to watch a movie on HBO. Yeah. I so probably I like, want to watch one of the sports channels or something. Yeah. So, you know, if, if five channel 500 appears in the, uh, the search results, you probably want to favor that one or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, have we missed anything? Like there was a lot of moving parts. I think, I think we got into depth pretty well on them, but I'm not sure if we're missing any, any big pieces of the puzzle here. Yeah, I think that I think that covers all the moving parts somehow. I know I know it sounds it ends up sounding a lot more complicated than it really is too, just because there are so many different things. Um, the other thing that I can speak to real quick too is just the goal of cost that I had going into it, um, where uh, the biggest one honestly is uh, I mean the SQL Server is five bucks a month. That's sort of like the baseline for this. Um, there's the twenty dollar a month XML TV listings thing, where if like you amortize that. Monthly, it's like a buck sixty-seven. It comes mm-hmm. out to, um, and then after that, it it's close to free. I mean, the the usage I have of IoT Hub is free. Um, I'm still on the free tier of Search Service. I'm still on the free tier of App Insights. Um, the Azure Functions service is, uh, I think, less than thirty cents a month or so. Oh, and yeah. most of that, and and that's it's free for the executions, and um, it's just like network network in, I guess, for downloading the XML that you end up paying a little bit for, but it's like a, you know, it's like 25 cents a month or something silly like that. Um, And it's like well less than a dollar a month for storage, where if I really wanted to, I could, I could delete a bunch of old XML files and drive that down. But the, you know, the, the risk or the, you know, the return on investment for, for that isn't super high when it's like 50 50 cents a month or something. (laughs) So I just haven't been able to justify that, but it really like overall, if you, including SQL server and including this yearly subscription to the TV listings, it's like seven bucks a month or something like that, which, which isn't too bad. That that's pretty good. Especially like you said, if, if, you know, probably a lot of our listeners, you have some kind of Azure credit of some kind that they could leverage for this. So, you know, if you can do that, then your, your cost is, is down to basically what the XML TV listings and, and that's about it, right? Yeah, and the whole cost is the five dollars SQL Server yeah. that I could do a bunch of other stuff with too. Like it's got, it's still got headroom because I'm, I'm not using it for anything intensive. It's just a place to dump stuff. Yeah, like I could probably even just move all that to just flat files if I want to really optimize cost here. But it just wasn't worth it. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Well, I, this was a fun episode. I know we've been meaning to do this for a while. So thanks for for finally doing a mind dump on on some of the stuff you've been doing. Um, we've got, you know, we'll put show note links to the blog series that you did and to some of the things that we talked about. Um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, no, this is a lot of fun. It's fun to be on the other side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you all next time on Gone Mobile.